Christ Church, New Malden, Sunday the 29th of January, 2023, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Outsiders Come to God, The Centurion at the Cross. Okay, well, the series we're in is called this, Outsiders Come to God. And so far in this series, we've largely looked at the way in which with the coming of Jesus, those previously excluded from God's people, people like Samaritans and Gentiles, were now able to come to God. They were now able to become part of his people. That was really the most obvious change that Jesus brought to the people of Israel. With all sorts of people, people like prostitutes, people like tax collectors, suddenly finding, much to their surprise, that they too were being welcomed into the kingdom of God. And this emphasis on Jesus being for everyone, with a particular emphasis on Jesus' inclusion of the poor and the marginalised, that's got very obvious implications for our mission at Christchurch, hasn't it? With the whole aim of many of our groups, and here's a photograph of our Christmas grapevine, our lunch club, the whole aim of many of our groups being to display that truth at the centre of our faith, that Jesus is for everyone. It's about tearing down the boundaries, the barriers, and including precisely those people who very often think that God isn't for them. But there's another aspect of this theme that I want to particularly pick up on this morning. Another aspect of this theme of outsiders coming to God that we need to acknowledge. Within the Bible, reaching its climax in the coming of Jesus is the very strong belief that all of the mightiest powers and mightiest rulers within the world will one day bow the knee before God and acknowledge him. In the New Testament, this means acknowledging that Jesus, and not them, is Lord of the world. Now that's rather different from the poor and the marginalised suddenly finding that they have a place within the love of God, isn't it? In some ways, it's the very opposite of that. But if anything, this theme would probably have been even more comforting to those being oppressed by what seemed overwhelming power. But the truth is that both of these themes the poor, the marginalised, being included within God's love and the mighty being brought down. Both of those themes are very much connected. Think of that famous song of Mary, the Magnificat, that we heard not long ago in our Christmas services. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was given the insight to recognise that with his coming, the status quo was being turned on its head. And this is part of what she sung. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And we do very much have the equivalent of those mighty rulers on their thrones today, don't we? Speak the words tyranny and unrestrained power, and probably plenty of images come into your head. Many of us, I think, at the moment, would instantly think of this man, Vladimir Putin, and the invasion of Ukraine, wouldn't we? That being the most obvious example of his might. Or we might think, particularly if we come from Korea, we might think of this person, Kim Jong-un, in North Korea, and the seemingly unchallengeable and dangerous amount of power that he seems to possess. 
But actually, there are loads of examples closer to home as well, aren't there? Within our country, many people worry about the amount of unaccountable power held by these groups, by the media, by institutions such as the police, the civil service, the trade unions, and yes, the Church of England. And the seeming impossibility of any of this changing. And against this background, we can perhaps start to see how the theme of these sorts of outsiders coming to God and being compelled to acknowledge that he and not them is Lord of this world is pretty important. And it's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. The most prominent tyrant or oppressor that we see in the earlier parts of the Bible is the Pharaoh in the story of Moses. There he is, or an actor playing him. That pharaoh enslaves the Israelites, doesn't he? He refuses to let them go, but his power is eventually defeated when the people of Israel are led safely through the Red Sea. And what happens to pharaoh's soldiers? Well, they're swept away, aren't they? Causing Moses to sing a song of triumph pretty similar to that song of Mary that we looked at a few moments ago. Fast forward through the Bible, and the whole of the book of Daniel is basically about arrogant world empires, such as Babylon, Persia, and Greece, that would appear to have overwhelming power within the world, but whose power, like an enormous statue, would eventually be toppled, as those powers are forced to acknowledge that God, and not they, are in charge of the world. And if you've ever read the book of Daniel, and particularly its second half, it's very, very strange, particularly the part where you get Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, having praised his mighty power and the glory of his majesty, he's promptly reduced, according to Daniel chapter 4, to being like a beast of the field. He's utterly humiliated before, according to the story, being able to be restored so that he can acknowledge that those things that he claimed for himself belong to God alone. Now, I don't for one minute think that the writer of that story is claiming that that event literally occurred. It's a story that I believe is written to reveal to the oppressed readers of that book that all of the great empires of their day would eventually, like in the story the mighty Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, be eventually brought low and forced to acknowledge that God and not them, is Lord of the world. And Psalm 2, that psalm that John read to us just a few moments ago, is all about this, with its references to the nations conspiring against God and how the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. And that's followed by this statement, the one in heaven laughs and says to his son, I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth, your possession. Now, it's not clear at that point who that son is, but of course, from the perspective of the New Testament, that son is Jesus. And all of this is therefore a really important part of the context in which we need to read the story of Jesus contained in the Gospels. Because a great deal of that story, if we've got eyes to see it, is about how the glory and the authority and the power claimed by that man, Caesar, actually belonged to another. They actually belonged to Jesus instead. 
So another passage pretty familiar to us from Christmas time is that one we hear where we hear about Mary and Joseph having to travel to Bethlehem. You'll all be familiar with that. Why did they have to travel? They had to travel because of a census, didn't they? Now, for most of my life, I've read these words at the start of Luke chapter 2 about Caesar Augustus issuing a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Throughout most of my uh, life, I've just read that as background information. But I now read it very differently. Particularly because just a few verses later, those angels who visited the shepherds take titles that were used of Caesar, titles like Saviour and Lord, and they reapply them to the baby in the manger instead. Once our eyes are open to this, we can see how the whole message of these accounts is that Caesar might have thought and acted as if he were saviour and lord of the world, but all of those titles and all of their glory belong to Jesus instead. And it's not just in the birth stories of Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus speaking and demonstrating what he calls the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God means the power or the rule of God, and it occurs everywhere where Jesus goes. As Jesus drives out evil spirits, heals the sick, feeds great crowds, everywhere Jesus goes, people experience what the world looks like when God is in charge. He teaches his followers to pray that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And it's all one big statement, that while the Romans might have thought that they and their emperor were in charge of the world, it was actually Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, who was Lord of the world. And the climax of that confrontation is that New Testament passage, which I managed to mess up this morning in terms of the reading. The climax of this confrontation between Jesus and Caesar is that passage from Mark's Gospel, the account of Jesus' crucifixion. And this is really important. Because long before it was a Christian symbol, the cross was a symbol of Roman power a symbol of total Roman dominance, a really powerful and deliberately visual sign of what happened to people stupid enough to challenge the power of Rome. Crucifixion, you'll know already, was an utterly horrible and prolonged public death, and it was designed to show everyone very obviously who was in charge. And when Jesus died and was crucified, this was emphasised by that ironic reading that was placed above his head, the King of the Jews. And the mocking of those present that anyone could possibly think that this person was a king. But what those people mocking Jesus didn't realise was that that very point where Caesar thought that he was most displaying his power, God was actually most displaying his because it was at that point, Christians believe, that Jesus died that horrific, humiliating death that God's love won the most amazing victory over evil by breaking its power. The death of Jesus is the point where God's total love comes face to face with the full reality of evil and defeated it once and for all. And what happens at that point? Well, several things, but they include something directly relevant to what I said earlier. 
It includes the Roman centurion, almost certainly the person in charge of the execution, and the foremost representative of Caesar that was present, doing precisely what Psalm 2 and the book of Daniel and loads of parts of the Bible had always said would happen, acknowledging the power and authority of God. This is what the centurion says. Surely this man was the son of God. And it's a foretaste of that future day when according to St Paul, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The confession of that Roman centurion, really the very last person you'd expect to say those words, signals what the death of Jesus would bring about. That future day when all the kings, all the tyrants of this world, all the people who serve them and do their bidding would throw down their crowns, their authority before Jesus and acknowledge that he is Lord. So what's the application of all of this to us? The application is that wherever we see oppression and injustice, wherever we see unfairness and bullying, we can be totally and utterly confident that this won't have the final word. This applies equally to the bigger issues happening in our world, like events in the Ukraine. It refers to events in this country, for instance, concerning corruption within the police, our politicians and the church. But it also concerns issues and events that might be more particular to us. Poor treatment, for instance, that you might be suffering in your place of work or in another part of your lives. In all of those areas, we can be tempted to feel that those who hold the power and those who are abusing that power are completely insuperable. But the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And saying that Jesus is Lord will mean acknowledging that they are not. But our response in the meantime is vital. Often when we're being badly treated or oppressed, we can then feel justified in responding to that oppression in a similarly negative manner. We can often feel if we're being badly treated that that is a mandate for us to hit back because they've started it, they're doing the worst, and we're just hitting back in a totally understandable way. But of course the Bible encourages the very opposite. The approach that the Bible advocates throughout involves patiently waiting for that future day when everything will be put right and crucially making sure that we stay right in the meantime. Now both things are equally important. It's about patiently waiting for that day when God will, as he promised, put things right. But crucially, on the basis of that, it's about us staying right in the meantime. That involves, according to the Bible, a proper obedience to those in authority while totally refusing to morally compromise because we know that Jesus alone is Lord. Now, how we work that out is a complicated thing. But if you know the stories of Daniel, you'll know that alongside all of those visions 
in the second half of the book of Daniel about the arrogant world empires being one day toppled, we get a selection of stories about Daniel and his friends. And it's very interesting to see how those stories are placed within that broader context. The broader context of Daniel, as I say, is all these arrogant world empires that claim an authority that is not theirs one day being totally toppled. But what do we see alongside that? We see stories of Daniel and his friends being hardworking and faithful servants of those kings while totally refusing to compromise their faith. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in their stories in Daniel, they work hard. They're, they're very assiduous in their duties while being absolutely clear that God is the one who is in charge of their lives. And he has uh, delegated a certain amount of responsibility to these kings. Even if they abuse that power, they are trying to stay in the right by serving faithfully. Now, those of you who are doing the Paul course at the moment will know that Paul says something very similar to those facing Roman oppression in the first century. They're to respect the authority that the emperor has been given by God while refusing to morally compromise because of their knowledge that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord. And to look ahead to that day when God has promised that every knee will bow to Jesus as Lord. And it's precisely the same challenge to us. All of us will have aspects of our life where we're running up against oppressive power, power in some ways that seems as though nothing can be done about it, and the response can often seem to just take a cynical view and go for what we can because that will never change. And this is where faith really makes a difference. If we really believe that one day God will reverse the status quo and will topple all unaccountable, oppressive power and that all of those powers will have to bow the knee before Jesus, if we really believe that, then that can really energise a faithful response from us in the meantime that seeks to keep ourselves right before God. The world, as I say, can seem full of enormous forces that seem so powerful that no one has a chance against them. And it can very often seem that we have to either give in to those forces or perhaps retreat into some private, otherworldly spirituality that has nothing really to do with the real world, that just seeks to sort of escape from it. But neither are credible options, particularly in the light of God's promise. Particularly in the light of God's promise that one day every knee will bow to Jesus and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And this is another really important part of outsiders coming to God. And just as much as the wonderful inclusion of those who thought they had no place in God's people, it shows that we have a God who in his son, Jesus Christ, is determined and resolved to put this world right. To put right all of those things that are unjust about it. We don't worship a God who is indifferent to the unfairness and the injustice and the suffering in this world. We worship a God who has promised he is going to put that right. And he wants us to live faithfully for him in the meantime, rather than becoming part of the problem ourselves. Our job, as we await that day, is to show patience, to continue keeping faith in God and his goodness, 
to really believe that he is going to fulfil those promises. Crucially, it's about continuing to keep ourselves right against all the temptations to just become another version of what we're up against because we feel that's justified, because we feel we're on our own. We've just got to fight back using pretty much the same weapons. This is where Christianity is really distinctive. We're made promises that we're told to have faith in, and that's the basis on which we're called to keep ourselves right ahead of those promises being fulfilled. Our calling is to keep proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. When we do that, people won't like that. When we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, we're saying that other things, other people, aren't Lord of this world. That's why the early Christians were persecuted, because they said that Jesus was Lord. That meant that Caesar wasn't. However much he was to be respected and obeyed in terms of the authority he had been given, that wasn't enough for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire wanted Caesar to be utterly supreme and that left no room for anyone above him. That's the reason why Christians were persecuted in their thousands, and many of them put to death. But they kept going. And they kept going because of their belief in God's promise that one day every knee would bow before Jesus, and ahead of that day, it was about keeping faith. It was about keeping ourselves in the right about being so convinced about that future coming day that it gave believers back then and still today the patience to endure through some really difficult times, the faith to continue trying to respond with love when we're faced with hate, and the patience to recognise that God places us in a community to be a sign of the fact that Jesus is Lord we're meant to be a visual sign to the whole of New Morden of what one day will come in its entirety. When people encounter this church, they're meant to encounter relationships and a welcome and an experience which demonstrates that we believe that Jesus is Lord. And that's when people start to believe in that future reality that will one day come in its entirety. That's the calling that we have. Let's pray.